to the Humanity Church Podcast, a place where meaningful conversations around living by faith, being known by love, and becoming a voice of hope are shared with the world every week. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will join us live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, online or at the historic Fox Theater in beautiful downtown Pomona. We also host humanity groups that meet all throughout the city and online to continue the conversation and support you in your ongoing spiritual journey. Find one near you by visiting humanitychurch.com. If you would like to financially support this podcast or the ongoing work at Humanity Church, you can text any donation amount to 84321 and give directly from your phone. Now, here's this week's podcast. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to gather in this space to hear from you, to connect to your spirit in a meaningful way. I pray that you would speak to us today, that you would open up our ears and our hearts and our minds to the things that you would have for us today. And that in that, we might leave here transformed, new, ready to move in power everywhere we go. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in a conversation for the last few weeks called Things You Don't Talk About at the Dinner Table. And uh, I remember uh, when we first started this, one of our communicators actually came up to us and said, oh, I didn't realize we were actually calling it that. Uh, But I think it's appropriate, right? Because there are just certain topics that we just decided, hey, these are the topics that people don't like to talk about, don't want to talk about. And we figured if we don't talk about them, someone's going to talk about them. So we might as well talk about them and have the conversation out in the light. These are These are the hard conversations that we at times avoid having, mostly because they cut deep into our identity, whether we're aware of it or not. And so the conversation around money, when we talk about that, we look at our bank accounts to tell us how valuable we are often. We, we look at our bank accounts to inform us of what's possible and not possible in our lives, what we can do and can't do. And for some of us, that is encouraging, and for most of us, that's very discouraging. And so we don't like talking about them because we've attached value to wealth, and those are two very different things in life. And then we talked about sex and sexuality and how really our attractions have become identities, and when we are able to separate those two, we're able to look at how we engage these conversations in their proper place. And and when we attach them to identity, it oftentimes becomes a conversation around shame or judgment or addiction or uh, uh, longings that we don't know what to do with. And so when we're able to separate those conversations and say, hey, let's have a conversation around what the scriptures call us into and what reality looks like, it gives us some more bandwidth to have these conversations. But of all these conversations, I actually think this week's is a doozy, which is why we're only spending one week on it. (laughs) This is the very end of this conversation, and we're entering into a new conversation next week. See, over the years, I've learned to really have no issues talking about money. I've actually found that when we have a conversation about money, it's really a conversation about freedom and faith and where we put our trust in. And over the years, as I've gotten over my fear of having a conversation around money, I've noticed that it actually sets people free when we have a conversation around money. I've even got over any qualms or concerns around the conversation around sex and sexuality and worrying about what that's going to look like and how that's going to be because what I found is that if we're able to come from it from a place of love and care and acceptance of who that person is in Christ, that we can have almost any conversation and it not be uh, too tumultuous in, in that space. But right now, politics is a whole other story. Because somehow, ironically, the conversation around money has become a political conversation. And the conversation around sex and sexuality has been a political conversation. And so when we're having a conversation around politics, we're having a conversation around all of it. 
And look, there's a lot of nuances that we're able to hang in as a culture still when it comes to money. We're able to have nuanced conversations around how we should spend and where our money should go and, and how we should engage it. There's even space to have nuanced conversations around sex and sexuality still, although that window is closing. There's still space to say, hey, I can disagree, or we can look at this from a different space or a different angle, and there's still room to talk about that. But right now in our culture, there is zero room for nuance when it comes to politics. There, there is no room for any type of wiggle room in there because here's the thing. If I was just to ask you right now, one at a time, to stand up and declare who you voted for for president last year this room would immediately become polarized. This would probably become one of the most viewed videos on YouTube if we did that right now. So we're going to. No, just joking. <laughs> because here's the thing. In our culture, all you have to say is who you voted for, and people immediately know who you are, how they're gonna relate to you, and everything else they need to know about you. And they've just decided this. See, because you stand up and say who you voted for, and you're either a right-wing bigot who hates immigrants, gays, mothers, the poor, and minorities, who's probably a Nazi, member of the KKK, or applauds school shootings, or you're a left-wing extremist who believes all babies need to die, want to open borders, spend all the money, who's probably a social Marxist, wants to trans the kids and have drag queens teach kindergarten. Let's be honest, those are very two realities that we just saw. Oh, I know exactly what camp you fall into, right? And this is where we've gone in our culture. There's no questions asked. We know exactly who you are. And of course, whatever side we're on is the right side, right? <laughs> whatever we're side on is the holy side, is the one who's actually doing the morally right thing in our society. And here's the thing. The, the crazy thing, it's not that just my side is the right side, and it's not even that the other side just believes different than me. It's that the other side is evil, that the other side has ill intentions, that their character actually at their core is bad. So it's not just that they believe different from me, it's that they are evil at their core. And because of this, there is very little room to have conversations and nuance in this arena. And definitely there's not a lot of room to see how we can see each other. We found ourselves at a culture in a standstill when it comes to this political conversation. And then you throw church into this mess. And it just adds gasoline to fire on top of this. See, I've actually found that one of the reasons why these conversations are so difficult to have is because the church has botched the conversation for so many years. And so in many ways, we're playing catch up to what has happened over the last few decades in the church and saying, hey, let's have a real conversation around what needs to be had about the scriptures, but then let's also do damage control of the decades around how the conversations around money and sex and sexuality and politics have been. I was speaking at a pretty large event last March, and I had three people come up to me that said almost the exact same thing, but one of them stood out to me. It was a young man who came up to me, and he said, how did you do that? And I said, well, I'm just a very talented communicator. No, but, but, but I said... What, what do you mean, how did I do what? And he said, how did you have a conversation around Jesus without mentioning politics at all? And I realized that this was a young man who was actually actively a part of the movement of Jesus, but had zero context for how we could talk about Jesus outside of a conversation about politics. And in that moment, it actually broke my heart because I realized that the church has become synonymous with politics and that it is almost impossible to be in a space like this without having a political message preached at you. 
And this is, I found, why more people have left the church over this conversation than almost anything else over the last four years. I've actually found that people can hang in a space where they disagree about money. We actually have lots of people at Humanity Church who can hang with us and disagree with our conversations around sex and sexuality. But when it comes to this, there's very little margin to to hang in there because here's what happens is that Jesus has actually been stripped of his full powerful message and been made a marketing strategy for a political party. And so when people come, they're getting a marketing strategy rather than a message about the fullness of Jesus. Now, I think we can clearly say that the right has been the one that has done this in history for the most part. That, that when we talk about Jesus, we almost talk about him as if he exclusively votes Republican. And I remember even as a kid there growing up when going to church, every election cycle, they would give us these voter guides. And it was like, this is who Jesus would vote for and it was pretty much every Republican on the list. Now, I'm not, look, I'm not knocking any political party in this conversation because now the left has done the exact same thing and said, oh, no, 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 let's swing the pendulum. Rather than just saying, hey, can we leave Jesus out of the political party? The left has said, no, 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 actually, Jesus is a member of our party and he cares about these things more than you do. And we care about these things even more than Jesus does. And so it's become... A marketing strategies on both sides of the aisle, and it has left everyone going, what does Jesus actually believe? Like, what is he actually up to in the world? And I have found that, that more people have left the movement of Jesus, not because of what Jesus taught, but because they were asked to take on the teachings of Jesus and a political ideology. They were asked to take on the teachings of Jesus and pick a political side that he clearly supports. And only one of those is actually sacred, and that is Jesus. And so in many ways, this is a conversation around teasing apart what Jesus has to say and what politics have to say. Not that they can't connect together, but that they are two very different conversations having very different purposes in the world. In fact, if you want to know what Jesus has to say about politics, we could actually have a very quick sermon and be out of here in just about five minutes. Some of you are like, let's do that, right? We're not going to, don't worry. But... But I actually Googled this this week just to think, am I missing something? Is there something that I'm like not seeing in the scriptures? No, there's only actually one thing that Jesus has to say about politics and it's found in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And it says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. These were the religious leaders. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You, are always, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention, because uh, you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it, is, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, a coin, and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscriptions? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God's what's God's. And they were amazed at him. So here's actually Jesus' full conversations about politics. Pay your taxes. Let's pray. No, I mean, really, that's it. When Jesus talks about the government or how we are to interact with Rome or how they were to interact with Caesar, his fullness of that is, hey, pay your taxes. So why is it that the church has gotten so wrapped up in this conversation when Jesus clearly was not that concerned around what was happening in Caesar's palace. He was not that concerned with what was happening with Herod. He was not that concerned with what was happening with the centurion guards. See, 
Why have all of these things been the things that we've attached our faith to? Why is it that we put our trust in this? See, even for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we may not say it, but our actions would say that we've put our faith in these things to save us rather than a God who has come for us in the middle of this. See, I wanna, I wanna go way back to this moment where the Israelites were actually led by God. And he was in covenant relationship with them. And he said, look, I'm gonna be the one who rules over you. And as long as you obey me, as long as you step into relationship with me, I will provide to you everything you need. Not only will I provide for you everything you need, food, shelter, protection, but I will bless you beyond what you could ever imagine. And as I bless you, your job is to be a blessing to the nations around you. I'm gonna like pour out into you more than you could ever imagine. I'm gonna give you more power than you could ever need. I'm gonna give you more resources than you could ever handle. And as you have that, you're just gonna funnel it out to every single person, every single tribe, every single nation that you come across. And that is how we are gonna work with this. And he did time after time. There were battles that they should have never won that they won over and over again. There were times where they were without and God constantly provided for them in the middle of this. But on top of that, they were led by prophets who heard from God and basically said, hey, here's what God says. Not what I think or my party thinks, but here's what God is up to right now. And so he would give them instructions from God himself. And then they had judges who would make sure that justice flowed like a river in the nation. That make sure that, that people were actually doing what God called them to do so that justice could be served and engaged in the nation around them. And this is how things work. But here's the catch. It was the responsibility of every single person in the society collective to participate in this way of living. It was everyone's responsibility to say, I am gonna join in this collective community of listening to the voice of God and allowing his justice to flow freely and to live as he has called us to do. See, so it was the community that cared for the sick and the elderly and provided for the poor and the widow and the orphan. It was the collective that made sure the city was fortified and that the soul of the people were set free and living in wholeness in accordance to what God says. They were free to actually live their lives as they wished. And every time they fought followed the way of the Lord, they prospered, and every time then they chose otherwise, they diminished in every area of society. But it was their responsibility to say, we choose to follow the Lord as he leads us in caring for the nation. And the prophets and judges, they just orchestrated the movement of people towards the heart of God, towards the heart of God for humanity. Now, one of those individuals was named Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, chapter 8, starting in verse 1, this is what happens. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside their dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. So here's the thing. Samuel finds himself getting old and he appoints his sons as leaders who are not actually connected to the heart of God. And the people know that if this happens, they're gonna lead the nation into ruin. 
because they recognize, oh, we actually have to have a clear like connection to the voice of God and his communication flowing through us if we're actually going to live whole lives. But notice that when they recognize this, they don't actually cry out, give us a spiritually healthy prophet to lead us. They don't say, hey, hey, this isn't gonna work. This is not gonna actually move us towards wholeness and towards goodness. We need a king. We need someone who will take responsibility for the community other than us. See, they don't, they don't cry out for someone to serve them as they lay their lives down and serve the world and serve the community. They cry out, appoint us a king. Everyone has one. We want one too. Give us a dictator. Give us someone who can rule over us. Give us someone who will gladly take our freedom to choose how we are going to live in this world and someone gladly took it from them. Now, why, why on earth would they want this? Why on earth, when they were looking at how God had interacted with them and moved with them and engaged with them and provided for them and given all the resources they need, why on earth would they look at that and say, mm, yeah, no, give us a king someone who we can hand our responsibility over to, we can give our freedom to, so that they can take care of it for us. It's probably the same reason that we do today. Now, here's the thing. We are too civilized to say, appoint us a king. We don't do that in our modern, polite society. But we say things like, give us a Republican majority. Give us a Democratic president. Give us a blue world. Give us a red world. Give me a government that will fix all of the things for me so that I don't actually have to get involved and I don't really have to do anything and someone else can make sense of this world around me. And there are lots of benefits to handing over our freedom to a king or a political party or a senator or a president See, like the Israelites, when we decide that it is someone else's responsibility, that I can give my freedom over to them, we are then relieved of our personal and collective calling to bring wholeness to the world. I don't have to do it. This is their job. I pay my taxes and I elect them. It is not my job to steward my resources so that I have enough to support my neighbor and support the community and give back. The government will take care of that. It's not my responsibility to check on the elderly person next door. Don't my taxes pay for like some program to do that? The immigrant that is struggling to find work and make sense of a culture that they, that they have no idea how to navigate within. The conversation is, well, who let them in? Someone should have shoved them out. Someone needs to pay for this. Or when it comes to any moral issue, just make it illegal or make it legal. That will change hearts, right? And then it'll fix everything. So I'm not actually faced with the need to have deep, meaningful, relational, messy conversations with a family member or a neighborhood or a city or a community about what's going on for them and how to have the nuanced conversations necessary to bring wholeness to the world around them because we all know that if we pass a law, it will change a heart, right? And so we hand over our power and our freedom to someone else See, th this is what the Israelites said. Hey, no one else has to live at the same responsibility that we do. They all have kings. They all have dictators. Someone else does this for them. 
So I don't have to be compassionate and empathetic and responsible. I don't have to make my own decisions around how I'm going to participate in this world. Give us a king like all the other nations. See, give us a king or give us a political party is really a declaration saying, I really don't want to take responsibility anymore. I'm really not interested in making decisions around how I'm going to use the freedom that God has given me. I really don't want to take responsibility for the resources that have been poured out to me and my community. And then when you're over owning the kingdom and owning your freedom, you, you give away your calling to bring wholeness to the world. Let me just tell you, there is always some tyrant willing to take it from you. There will always be someone on both sides of the aisle who are more than willing to say, hand it over. I will gladly take that responsibility from you. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. They said, give us a king, and this is how it continues. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you whom they rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, and they have, they, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are doing this to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now I want you to listen to what God says to the people of Israel because I imagine this is the same thing that God is saying to us today. Samuel told the words of the Lord to his people who wrote, who were asking him for the king. He said, this is what the king, this is what the president, this is what the Congress, this is what your senator will do. He will reign over you and claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will sign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumer, perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and female Female servants and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people will refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people, he said, and repeated to it before the Lord, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. And the Israelites were given Saul, who, as we remember from our David series a few months back, led the nation into physical and spiritual ruin in this moment. And here's the great thing. The Israelites could look at that. They could look at Saul and say, it wasn't our fault. It was Saul's fault. The king did this. The government did this. The Congress did this. It's not my fault. We have someone to blame now. Doesn't it feel good to have someone to blame when things go wrong? Oh man, I love it so much. Let me just tell you, I find all kinds of ways to blame other people <laughs> for places that I have abdicated my responsibility or chosen not to step into this or chosen not to do whatever it may be. 
And we love having someone to blame when things go wrong. That's just a part of our human nature. We love someone having, having someone else to blame for things that we didn't do or did do. I paid, I, I paid my taxes and actually I voted for the other guy. So this isn't my fault. I, I get an automatic pass because I didn't have anything to do with that. When things go crazy or when things go soft, we hand over the keys to our car and say, hey, you take it. You, government, do for me what I was called to do. But the problem is that when they crash the car, you can say, see, not my responsibility. They did that. It is the perfect setup. We're relieved of our responsibility and then we have someone to blame when things go wrong. See, when we elevate politics to such a holy place in our lives, where we have more faith in a Senate than we do God, and by the way, that looks different ways. That looks like resisting and kicking back when you're like, like just resting and kicking back when your political party is office, like, oh good, we got a Democrat. Oh good, we got a Republican. Oh good, we got an Independent. We can kick back. They'll take care of it now. But it also looks like when your team isn't in office, being so worried that the world is going to go to hell, that, that, that you have no choice but to post nonstop on Twitter and Facebook about how awful the opposition is. Or every time you talk, you're like, can you believe what they did? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. See, how angry you get over politics probably lets you know how much faith you put in them. But when we elevate politics to this holy level in our lives, when something happens, what we are saying is that we want someone to fight our battles, which is exactly what happened here with the Israelites. Give us a king that can fight our battles for us. And when the fight, the struggle, and the victory comes, it was actually ours to take on. It was actually our battle. It was actually our fight. It was our place to make the world whole. It was never actually designed for a senator or a president or a king or a dictate to take that over. That was assigned to us. See, I am here to claim to you today the church is the community that was placed on this earth to care for the sick and to provide for the poor and to comfort the brokenhearted, to make sure the orphan and the widow are secured, to bring peace to the nations, to demonstrate what forgiveness looked like, to have justice flow like rivers, to ensure that love is the highest form of human value, to make sure that every single person, no matter race, color, creed, gender, has a place in community to be cared for and known and protected. Every single political issue that we have handed over to someone else was actually once the mandate of the people of God to engage and to take care of, not to pass on to some king or to pass on to some senator or representative or president. But when we do, isn't it super convenient? It's super convenient to either kick back and say, good, they'll take care of it. Or, oh no, what are we gonna do? See, I, I don't have to look at myself in those moments because I can either blame Biden or I can bring, blame Trump and say it's their fault. It's their fault we're here. Rather than saying, what is God calling me into? And what is God calling us into? And what is God inviting us collectively to create in the world around us? 
See, when Jesus established his church, this is what he says about it in Matthew 16. He says, and I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. See, when Jesus came to this earth, he actually did not invest himself into a political system. He did not immediately go into Rome and say, all right, let's take this on. Let's pass some laws. Let's do some voting here. Let's make this happen. He actually built an unstoppable community that would heal humanity with the fullness of God moving through them as they took responsibility to bring wholeness into the world. And what he promises is that this movement, not even the gates of hell can stand against it. That nothing can actually come against us that he longs for us to serve a spiritual king who has empowered us to transform the world with his spirit flowing through us. See, isn't it funny how Christians act as if the kingdom of God can be defeated by an election cycle? Uh Uh-oh, they're in power now. I wonder if God knew that. I wonder what he's gonna do now that they have the office, that they have the Senate, that they have the Congress. I wonder what, what he's going to be up to right now. Or that, that God suddenly is victorious, that their party finally got in place. Oh, good. God finally did it. He, he got our political party in place, and now we are taken care of. As if, as if November 1st, God is like shaking in his boots about what's going to happen on the planet. And then November 2nd, he's either celebrating or he's running in fear around what's going to happen in the world around us. Let me just give you a hint. God is actually never worried about who is in control. God is actually never afraid that the world is going to fall apart as a result of this. In Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 20, it says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and season. He disposes kings and rises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. See, God's like, look, I can rise up kings and I can take them out. That's not actually a big deal to me. I'm not actually that concerned about it. What I am concerned is, are the people who claim to follow me and who are filled with my presence actually willing to take on and own the power that I have given them to make an impact in the world around them, to take on the mantle and the calling to be the people who say, I choose to transform the world around me with the full power and presence of God. It's it's interesting that today is actually Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if you knew that, but in the church calendar, this is the day that we celebrate this moment where the church is actually born into existence. And in Acts chapter two, starting in verse one, this is a reflection. It's the story of this moment that we remember today on Pentecost Sunday. And it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being uttered. Utterly amazed, they asked themselves, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? 
Then how is it that each of us hear them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Ea, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now let me just set the stage for this moment. This moment in Jerusalem was a highly volatile moment. Because here you have all different cultures and nations and people of different backgrounds all emerging into one city. And yes, they were all God-fearing Jews, but they all came with their own agendas and ideas of what their culture needed and what their nation needed and who was going to be the best and who was going to be the who was going to be the most favored and who did things the correct way and who did things the not correct way. And here we have people from every background, nationality, ethnicity, skin tone here in a potential for the greatest conflict. In fact, when you read historical accounts on the day of Pentecost, the Roman guard amped up all of the soldiers who were there because they were oftentimes infighting among all the groups who were here in this space. There was so much potential for conflict, for injustice, for racism, for disorder, all to happen right here in this place. And you know what happened when the Spirit of God came flooding into his people? The people did not run for the Senate chamber. The people of God did not run to the officials and say, we need to change the laws in this country. See, the spirit of God actually filled his people. And the first thing that they did was they created unity with every single person that was there. They brought every single person from nations and backgrounds and needs and cultures. And they all stood there and said, the spirit of God is speaking directly to me through these people. They were instantly unified and amazed because the spirit of God came together in this moment. They went out and brought a community together in this place, not under the name of Rome, but under the name of the kingdom of God. And this This is the prototype for the movement of Jesus today. How much more so is this an example for us as to how we are to engage the world? See, Jesus did not come to establish the empire of Rome and make the empire of Rome holy. Jesus did not come to establish the nation of the United States of America. He came to establish a kingdom of light and love and of on heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. And see, I think people hear that as a knock against our country when I say that. I I love our nation. Look, people always ask me, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? And I tell them I can live anywhere and I choose to live here. Because I have been many other places in the world and I I see us as a nation and we're just the one that are struggling towards hope the fastest, I believe. It doesn't mean we're perfect or correct or right by any other stretch of the imagination or that that others aren't right or the best. That is not what that means. It just means that, that, man, I believe that, that God is up to something here and I also believe that if this nation was to fall apart tomorrow, the kingdom of heaven would not fall apart. And I put little very very little faith in a room filled with women and men in D.C. If I thought that that's where the transformation of the human experience was going to happen, Marla and I would move to Virginia in a heartbeat. But, but I actually don't believe that that is where the epicenter of the transformation of the human heart is taking place. I believe it's taking place every single place where the people of God decide that they are going to take on their calling to be 
those who bring wholeness to the world around you. Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying in this conversation, because some of you, I know this is very nerve-wracking for you. (laughs) What I am not saying is do not care or get involved in politics. That is not what I'm saying. I am not saying it doesn't have a place or it is not absolutely necessary. About eight years ago, Marla and I ran our mayor's campaign here in the city because we looked out and we saw, man, the city needs some leadership here. The city needs people who can come in and say, hey, I can, I can influence power at a systemic level. So I am not saying remove yourself, recuse yourself, do not be involved, do not steady, stepping into that place. Be active, educate yourselves. Justice can open up and close down based on who is in office. Vote for the best of your ability to bring life and hope into the world. I love 1 Timothy in chapter two, verse one, where it says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. But then he says specifically for kings and all of those in authority that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So please, pray, intercede. May the words out of your mouth towards our leaders be blessing. May we pray that God would influence and impact whoever is in office. And that justice would flow like rivers to every single person who calls this place their home. But what I am saying is this, is that the moment you put your hope and trust in a government as if they are on par with God himself, that is the moment that you have given up your God-given responsibility and calling to partner with him in bringing hope to the world, in bringing wholeness to humanity, in redeeming the time that we find ourselves in. See, when the church expects a political party to do for us what we are unwilling to do for the world, we have lost our way. We have immediately lost the way. Our job is not to usher in the kingdom of the United States of America, but to usher in the kingdom of heaven everywhere we go. A kingdom of faith and of love and of hope. And look, let's not kid ourselves. In our two-party system, neither of them have a monopoly on Jesus. Neither of them communicate the heart and the heartbeat of who God is at his core. And, and, and just recognizing, look, whoever I vote for, I, I have to make major compromises on what I believe. And I have to make major compromises on 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 who I think Jesus is and how he would want to see this nation run. So if you're putting your faith in a political party, you are putting your faith in a massive compromise. Because the fact of the matter is, is here we are, not just as a people, but even as a church, still crying out, give us a king. Give us someone who will do for us what we are unwilling to do for the world. I don't know about you, but even this week as political candidates have started announcing they're running and the newspapers are flaring up and Twitter's exploding. I can, have, you ever, have any of you like started feeling the anxiety inside of you? Like, ooh, I don't know if I'm emotionally ready for this. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for another 2020. I don't know if I'm ready for another 2016. I don't know if I'm ready for the level of intensity that's about to hit. So here's my challenge for us as we enter into this crazy election cycle. Let's be those that keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not on a political party, 
that we would keep our ears close to the heart of God and that we would listen to him about how he would call us not only to vote and who to vote for, recognizing that there are massive compromises to be made in whoever we vote for, but that we would keep our ear to his heart in asking the question, God, what is it that you would have me do to bring wholeness to our world? What is it that you would call me into to bring hope to the world around us? Because let me just give you a hint. At the end of the day, who you vote for president or who you vote for your senator has some impact on the world. But you walking next door to the person who is in need will have so much more impact. You going across the street to the elderly person who is alone and isolated and saying, hey, can I just sit with you and bring you dinner will have a greater impact than whoever runs a city council. You being willing to go to the places where the poor and the destitute and the immigrants are and saying, hey, I want to support and help and be with you will have a greater impact than anything else. Those of you who are saying, how can I give back of my resources in ways that impact spaces in real time? That's gonna have much more impact than any fiscal budget that's being passed in the world around us. And as we keep our eyes on him, He guides us on how we are to be his hands and how we are to be his feet to the world around us, trusting that he has called us, his church, to transform the world with love. So please vote. Please be educated. Please be aware and participate fully. But we have to be those who recognize that we are the citizens of a much bigger kingdom that transcends nations and borders and people groups and languages. And that speaks to the very heart and soul and center of humanity. And that our allegiance is to him before any other political party, government, president, nation. And in that, we actually have the hope to transform the world because let me tell you, The gates of hell will certainly prevail against politics, but they cannot and will never prevail against the movement of his people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have placed within us, not us just as individuals, but us as a collective here in the room, the calling to bring hope and wholeness to the world, a calling to bring fullness to your people, to restore and redeem the humanity that you have called us to step fully into. God, forgive us of the places where we have elevated political systems above your heart, where we have put more trust in a law or a senator or a president than your spirit moving. And God, I ask today that you would move deeply within us that as we even step into this crazy election season, that that people would be shocked about how firm we are in our identity of you. That people would be in awe and amazed that we are bringing unity rather than division. That you are calling us into a space to unite people rather than to blame or shame or to divide. That we might be those who heal rather than inflict more pain. So God, we keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. God, help us to be wise and discerning in how we cast votes and how we look at our political systems. We pray for those in power. 
We pray for our president and our senators and our congressmen, for our Supreme Court, for our mayors, God, for for our city councils, God, for our school board members, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them your spirit speaking into them as they are leading. And God, would you give us the courage and the stamina to live quiet lives as we give away hope and love and faith everywhere we go. And there are some of you in this room today that you may have not yet connected to Jesus. Maybe this is like a brand new conversation. You're like, wow, I, I didn't even know that this could be a thing. Maybe even, even today you've recognized, man, my anxiety has been around how the world's gonna turn out rather than thinking who holds the world. And today, if you have not yet connected to Jesus in relationship with him, I'd love to just invite you into a moment to connect with him. If that's you, if today you're here and you're like, I don't know if I am connected to Jesus in a meaningful way. If you're online, this is an invitation to you as well. But if that's you, I'd love for you just to look up at me and to know that this is a moment for you to connect to Jesus. This is a moment for you to say, hey, I'm all in with him. And if that's you here in, the, here in this place or online, I just want you to pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I am a sinner. I know that you died and you came to life for me. So I make you Lord. And I put my faith and my hope in you, not anything else. I thank you for who you are and what you've done for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope that it was a meaningful experience and look forward to having you listen in next week for another conversation from the heart and soul of Humanity Church. You can find more information about our community at www.humanitychurch.com.